Amen. So last week we looked together at Joshua 3 and 4 as we started off this series called Facing What's Next. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the strategic ministry plan that our strategic task force put together for us, and you're going to get a copy of it next week. And uh, it's, it's exciting. I can't, I can't wait for you to read it. The things God has in store for our church are just amazing. But I mentioned to you last week that it's one of these types of things that has made me incredibly insecure about my own leadership and about my own confidence in what lies ahead for our church. And so I was looking to the scriptures to find something to comfort me. And God kept bringing me back to this story of the Battle of Jericho, where God miraculously conquered a whole city just with some shouts and trumpets. And so I got to thinking, what, what do these stories leading up to Jericho teach us about the process God used to prepare his people for that big victory, the, the biggest win, maybe, in all of Scripture, apart from the resurrection? And so we looked at it last week, that first passage. But today I want to continue thinking about it. And if you've ever faced something like this, a big new opportunity that sits out in front of you, a wide open door, as Paul talks about, you know, you, you sit down to plan out your steps. And for me, the fun part is always buying what you need to make it happen. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever gone through one of these fitness kicks where you're like, today is the day that I become a runner. And what do you do? You don't, you don't pull up the training plan and go out and run. First, you go to academy. And you get you one of those matching outfits of shorts and t-shirt, and you get you some shoes, and you put it on. And you, you've never run a day in your life, but you feel like a runner, you know. And, and I went through this in college where I wanted to start hiking. And so I went to the local uh, outfitter in Mobile, Alabama, Spoken Trail, and I got me a nice backpacking backpack. And I'd never been on a trail in my life, but I was the kind of guy who backpacked, you know. And I don't know, the opportunities present itself sometimes like this. You, you want to start a business, and so you sit down and you map out a business plan. You want to be the kind of person who invests, and so you research online like the great investments. And as good as all these preparations are, getting the shoes and t-shirt, that matters. But having the right shoes doesn't make you a runner. And having a backpack doesn't make you a backpacker. And having a business plan doesn't make you an entrepreneur. At some point, you're going to have to do the harder thing. The actual hard work of preparing to walk through, of getting up one morning when the sun's not out yet and starting to beat feet and hit the street and become a runner. And that's what Joshua 5 is all about. Joshua 3 and 4, God gives the people this personal experience of his power and presence. And, and in Joshua 5, he gets down to the hard bit, the actual deeper issue that's present in them, that they were spiritually unprepared for what they were going to face next. And so, jo so God told Joshua exactly the steps to take to make sure they were where they needed to be to face what lied ahead. And so this morning, I want to work through this passage. just want to briefly walk through Joshua 5 and then draw out two principles that I think are going to help us think about what we're facing next. And so the point is simple. We prepare to face what's next when we repent of our past obedience and renew our commitment to God. That's what I want you to learn from this passage today. That's, if that's all you get out of it, Brad preached on circumcision, but his point didn't say anything about it. Well, this is the point of this passage. We prepare for what's next by repenting of our past obedience and renewing our commitment to God. And I'm just going to tell you, this morning when I was in here preaching, I was, I was going at about 100 miles an hour. So I hope you're buckled in and you wore your steel-toe boots. All right, because here we go. Right, the chapters 3 and 4 are wonderful. If you weren't here last week, Joshua 
uh, miraculously leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land because God parked the Ark of the Covenant right in the dead center of that river and it split apart so that the people were able to walk across on dry land. Afterwards, they picked up 12 stones and they piled them in a heap and God said, these are stones for remembering. You're going to remember what I did today and your children are going to ask you, what do these stones mean to you? And so we saw that when we remember God's work in the past, it builds our faith to face what's next. But here in chapter 5, it's not just this experience that the people needed to develop firsthand. They didn't just need this personal firsthand experience of God's power and presence. They needed to deal with their hearts, that they were totally spiritually unprepared. And that's where the issue of circumcision comes in. I love just how matter-of-fact God says this. Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Now, if you're a Bible person and you've grown up going to Sunday school, this is not the first time you've run across this concept in Scripture. Um, in fact, circumcision was everywhere in the ancient Near Eastern world and far-off kingdoms and places, and it was practiced for a variety of social and religious reasons. And so the Hittites practiced circumcision, the Egyptians practiced circumcision, but the circumcision practiced by Israel was totally unique. They alone had a God-given reason. Maybe you remember God calls Abraham out of ancient Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees. He says, Abraham, leave your father and your father's house and go to the place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you. I'll make you a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. So Abraham packs up his people and his animals, and they start their walk. Eventually, God brings him to the promised land, the very land that the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 5 are finally standing on. And God shows Abraham, he says, all this that you can see, I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great name. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. That's Genesis 15. Then in Genesis 17, God shows back up. And he tells him in Genesis 17:10, every one of your males must be circumcised. And circumcision was given to Abraham by God as a sign of God's everlasting commitment to fulfill the promises he'd made to him. That Abraham could bank on it. It was visible and he could see it. That God was going to come through on the promises he'd made. At the same time, it was a sign of Abraham's commitment to live a life of devotion and faithfulness to God. He couldn't escape it. It was with him everywhere he went, a constant reminder that his body was set apart for God's purposes. And because of that, God said in Genesis 17, 14, that any male not circumcised is to be cut off from his people. So circumcision was the sign of a person's participation in the covenant God had made with Abraham. They belonged to Abraham. They were his physical descendant, and they were heirs of the promises that God had made to him. And so from generation to generation, Abraham's descendants all received this covenant sign, unbroken from one generation to the next. usually happened in the privacy of a person's home on the eighth day of the young boy's life. But somewhere along the way, this succession got disrupted. And Joshua tells us exactly when it was. The people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. 
I mean, for 400 years, Abraham's descendants had practiced this everlasting covenant. But for this 40-year stretch, they'd stopped. And that's curious. That's strange. What made them give up the covenant sign that had united them to every male ancestor they could trace all the way back to Abraham? What, what, would, what would do that? I've been trying to figure that out all week. And I've read the commentaries, and I've looked it up online, and tried to see what the scholars say, and this is it. Okay, At best, the wilderness generation neglected the covenant sign out of carelessness. And you can think about how chaotic their lives must have been. They lived in tents in the desert, wandering from place to place whenever God told them to move. They relied on him for daily bread that fell from heaven, the manna. And they needed him to bring water up out of the rocks so they would have something to drink. And their lives were crazy. And maybe along the way from moving from place to place and living as nomads, their life just got busy and they just sort of left off the covenant sign. That's the best case scenario. I don't know how that sits with you. Let me give you the worst case and you can help me decide. Okay, the worst case is not just that they were careless, but that their lack of faithfulness in circumcising their sons was a reflection of their rebellion and hard-heartedness towards God. I mean, think about this. These are the people who, when they arrive at the promised land for the first time, and Moses sends 12 men into the land to spy it out, and those 12 men come back, bring their report. Ten men say, hey, this land is amazing. You would not believe how incredible it is. The cities are awesome. The vineyards are planted and producing incredible fruit. But the people are huge. And we're like grasshoppers. There's no way we can take the land. And then the two, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, God is on our side. We can absolutely take this land. If God is with us, nobody can be against us. But the people rejected Joshua and Caleb's report, and they rebelled against God. And because of that, Joshua reminds us, God swore to them that he wouldn't let them see the land which he had sworn to their fathers, a land flowing of milk and honey. I mean, these people had rejected God's free offer of life in the promised land because they did not believe. And so maybe they stopped being faithful to the covenant sign because they really were not believers. See, Scripture talks about circumcision in two ways. It talks about the physical mark of circumcision, and it talks about what the mark symbolizes and signifies. Scripture is never content with talking about circumcision just in the flesh. It's always looking for something deeper. That's why Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, Israel, what does the Lord your God require you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and the statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that's in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection. That's Abraham. He set his affection on them to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. That's you. Even you. You above all peoples. As it is to this day. So, circumcise your heart. And stiffen your neck no longer. 
See, what God was after from his people was not just an exterior covenant sign. He was after their hearts. He wanted what the things symbolized to be true of them, that they were really his people. The wilderness generation had the covenant sign, but their heart was so far from God, they weren't his people at all. And so they didn't give it to their children. And as a result, you could say this wilderness generation now crossed the Jordan River in the promised land are in some kind of covenantal limbo. One foot in, one foot out. I mean, they're physical descendants of Abraham. Like they can trace their ancestry through the patriarchs, the 12 sons of Israel, through Jacob, through Isaac, back to Abraham. They are his physical descendants. And because of that, the promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 were true for them. They could claim it. Hey, you made those promises to my great-great-granddaddy, and they are my promises, and I'm claiming them. And yet, they didn't bear the covenant sign. They were physical descendants, but they hadn't undergone the knife. They weren't bearing the mark in their body. Because of that, yeah, they were physically uncircumcised. But they were also uncommitted, personally. And they were spiritually unprepared for the conquest that was about to ensue. Were they really his people? And if so, in what sense? And I think that's how you have to understand Joshua chapter 5. That when God instructs Joshua to make flint knives and circumcise all the males of Israel, what he's calling him to do is to draw a line in the sand to challenge the people of Israel. Whose side are you on? Are you going to walk in the ways of your fathers who rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness? Or are you going to be God's faithful people? And so I think these two principles come out. This is what the act of circumcision represented for every man who showed up at Joshua's tent. Number one, they were going to repent for their past disobedience. Now think about this. Repentance is a Bible word. It means to change. And specifically to change your mind or change the way you think about things. And when Joshua said, all right, I've got a new command from God. And he explains the process and what's about to happen. Every one of those men have to decide for themselves, am I ready for this? Am I willing to do this? It's clear in black and white. And each man who showed up, had decided on his own that uncircumcision was wrong and to remain uncircumcised was going to be disobedience. But since God had called them to do it, they were ready to act. Changes had to be made. They had to go from uncircumcised to circumcised. They had to go from unprepared to prepared. They had to go from wishy-washy, one foot in, one foot out, to totally committed. And that's what they did. They had to know on some level that to be disobedient meant that whatever lay ahead of them, whether it was Jericho, which they could see in the distance, the outlying villages and the high walls of Jericho, and they knew what cities lay beyond it. And if they were going to be sure of God's blessing in their life, they were going to have to get right. They were going to have to repent of their past disobedience. Because here's the point. God cannot bless disobedience. 
So when they go get circumcised, it's not just about getting the covenant sign. It's about making a change. They're repenting of their past disobedience. And I know for you and for me, the same decision sits before us. If you want to face what's next in your life with confidence that God's with you and that He's for you, you're going to have to take a long, hard look at areas of your life where you're disobedient. He can't bless disobedience. And so the challenge is, are you going to stay disobedient? Are you going to remain unchanged? Or are you going to do what it takes to repent of your sin? You know, the, the option is real. Every last one of us has a choice to make today. We can go on living the lives we've lived, mixed with half-hearted devotion and full-blown disobedience, or we can do what God calls us to do and to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To pursue Him with all that we are. You know the dangers of continuing in disobedience, but let me read to you one thing that I came across this week that I thought was pretty powerful. This is from David's psalm, Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. This is the option that stood before the people of Israel and that stands before us. We can keep quiet about our sin and our disobedience and suffer for it. Or we can repent and experience the blessing of God in what we face next. Jesus knew this. Jesus shows up out of the wilderness. I think the same wilderness the people of Israel had wandered through for 40 years. He shows up and the first words out of his mouth are about this next thing. The next wonderful thing that God's about to do in the world. He says, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Make the changes necessary to get in on what God's about to do in the world. The apostles understood this too. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4 in the temple uh, to the Jews who'd crucified Jesus, not just a, a few months before. And he says, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouths of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Here's the option. Stay disobedient and suffer for it. Repent and get right with God and experience times of refreshing and blessings, being surrounded by songs of deliverance. I don't know about you, it's pretty obvious to me which path I want to take today. You don't have to paint it in black and white. You don't have to pull out any flint knives. I know exactly which path I want to take. I want to do whatever I have to do to experience the blessing of God in my life and on my family and on our church. And so here's the question you have to ask. What area of my life is defined by disobedience? 
It was pretty clear for the people of Israel. God made it black and white, but, but it's not always so clear for us. And so maybe you ought to ask yourself, what area of my life is defined by disobedience? It's the way you, you treat your family. You know that God would have you love your family. It's the way you treat them. You're being disobedient in that area. Maybe it's an issue of stewardship, both with your money and with your time. Are you spending your time and money the way God would want you to? Maybe it's those destructive habits and patterns of behavior that we use to sort of mask and medicate our insecurities and flaws. You know, we've all got those. Maybe it's secret sin that you're thankful no one knows. Maybe you drink too much. Maybe you cuss too much. You've got a foul mouth. And what, what is it in your life? What area of your, is there an area of your life defined by disobedience? If so, you want to face the next thing. Face what's next in your life. It's where you start. You're spiritually unprepared to do the things God's called you to do until you repent of your past disobedience. He can't bless disobedience, not in your life and not in our church. God can't bless our church if we haven't repented of past disobedience. I wonder about that. You think in our 80-year history we got any things in our past that we'd rather not look at? Hidden sins we'd like keep tucked away? I mean, think about this. You think there's ever been a fight at CBC that caused somebody to leave our church mad? You know, they slammed the door on the way out of a business meeting. I am never stepping foot in that blankety-blank church again. Now, how many of those fights have there been in 80 years? I hear whispers about them, you know, rumors. Now, have we ever repented of that? That rather than walking in obedience to Christ's command to love one another or to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we divided over petty differences. What about, like, in the past? Certainly we don't do this now, but we evaluate success on the wrong metrics. You know, we talked about this a little bit Wednesday night in our prayer time, the nickels and noses. That's what really matters in a church. What's the offering looking like, and how many people are in the pews on Sundays? If the budget's up this year, attendance is up, things are going good. Some people say buildings, budgets, and butts. That was a little crass for my taste, so I didn't want to use it, but I had to. You know, Jesus doesn't care the size of our budget. He's not, I'm not going to get to heaven and give an account of my life, and he's going to say, hey, Brad, you know what, man? 2022, that was a bumper year. Y'all have more giving in 2022 than you'd had in the past 15 years. Great job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, he's going to ask me and he's going to ask you. I gave you one task. Make disciples. Where are yours? And I'll turn around. Maybe you'll turn around. How many would you see? But I tithed. But I was at Sunday school. We ever repented 
of valuing the wrong things, things that don't matter to God matter to us. Have we ever repented over that? What about somebody told me that CBC is the white church in Lilling? Y'all ever hear that? It's weird how those kind of things get started. You know, when I got here, we were, I think 98% Anglo in a community 50-50 split. Now, you got a range of options for explaining that. It's all kind of different historical, social reasons. You know, on the one hand, you got carelessness. And it's easier for us to relate to people who look like us, who come from similar backgrounds to us, who think like us. And we're busy with church stuff, just, you know, got programs to run and that stuff, getting used to people who are from different cultural backgrounds and like different kind of music and all that, that's hard. We got too much work to do as a church. And just through carelessness over 80 years, you develop a sort of homogeneity where everybody looks the same, thinks the same, and knows the same songs. Y'all with me? You're awful quiet. Well, then there's the other option, too, though. Maybe it's not carelessness. At best, it's carelessness. At worst, maybe we're an awful lot like Israel. A little hard-hearted. A little rebellious. A little bit following the motions on the outside, but not letting it take root in our heart. We ever repented of that? I mean, has God ever given this church clear direction in the past and we said no? Has God ever made it clear to us what He wanted us to do and we crossed our arms, stuck out our chest? We don't do that around here. That's not the way we do things here at CBC, God. And one thing leads to another in our lives and in our churches, and eventually you get to this point where the preacher works up some courage and the Holy Spirit starts convicting, and you get it in black and white. Make some flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel for the second time. Call my people to repent. And you choose. You say, yeah, that was then, and that's, you know... We're not going to mess with that. That stuff happened a long time ago. But you want to experience God's blessing in what you face next? You have to repent of your past disobedience. You can't bless disobedient people. You can't bless disobedient churches. You've got to repent. And then the other side of the coin. Because you have these men showed up and in being circumcised, they repent of their disobedience, but they also renew their commitment to God. That's, repentance and renewal are like two sides of the same coin. They go together, hand in hand. You want some change? Well, you say goodbye to the old way of life, and you say hello to the new. And that's what they did. They showed up renewing their hearts and commitment to God. Each man, personally, on his own, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I am going today. From this day forward, and as soon as I get healed up, I'm going to walk in obedience to God the rest of my life with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to be totally committed to Him. To use John the Baptist language, what they were really being called to was not just repenting, but bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. To take the covenant sign upon themselves and then to fulfill all the obligations that they knew about. To fulfill the law just as God had required it. And this is always the hard part 
Any husband ever get chewed out by his wife knows how easy it is to apologize, but how hard it is to change. Can I get an amen? I went through the ringer this weekend myself, and I've got to take my wife out on a date tonight to make up for it. Uh, It's easy to say sorry. It's awful hard to change. But what God's after from us is not empty words of repentance. God, I'm sorry. You're right. You caught me again. I'll never let it happen again. Now, what he wants is fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is where God's people struggle. I mean, we end up an awful lot like the Ephesians that Jesus talks to in Revelation 2. There's some good and there's some bad. I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles but aren't. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you haven't grown weary. But I do have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Renew your commitment. There's some good. There's also some bad. Repent of it and then get back to business doing what's right. It's like Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. They forgot. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You're God's people. Live like it. And so the challenge stands to every one of us. Will we let God show us our disobedience? Repent of it. And say to him, from this day forward, I'm going to live completely for you. To say, I'm going to spend my time and money wisely from this day forward. I'm sorry. I've been wasting my time like crazy. I'm sorry for that. God, you've given me limited time on the face of the earth. And I want to make sure that the rest of my life is spent for your purpose so that you get the glory out of the life I live. God, I'm sorry for the way I've treated my family. My kids are getting older every day. What am I teaching them? What am I showing them? God, from this day forward, I'm going to love them the way you've loved me. I'm going to sacrifice for my wife. I'm going to train up my kids in the way that you've told me to. God, I'm sorry I've been holding grudges for all these years. From this day forward, I'm going to forgive people like you've forgiven me. That's what we're talking about. That's what the men of Israel did. We're sorry our parents did that. That's on them. But from this day forward, I'm going to live obediently and faithful to you. From this day forward, Jesus, I'm going to prioritize my walk with you. I'm going to stay as close to you as I can because I know apart from you, I can do nothing. That's what he's calling his people to today. If you're going to face what's next, in the moment, before the battle kicks up, You have to decide in your own heart, am I really committed to God or not? And so I wonder, are you committed to God? What do you think? You asked yourself that question lately? Am I committed to God? To what extent? You know, we think about the the pain. Scholars tell us it probably took 10 days between God's command and when the people were healed up and ready to go on to Jericho. 
I'm thankful. God's demands for us are different today than they were in Joshua 5. While they may not be as physically painful, they're just as costly. Sing this week about Mark chapter 8. The last passage we looked at in Mark just a few weeks ago. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? Indeed, what could a man exchange for his soul? Jesus is calling us to give up everything for him. And today that means preparing to face what's next by repenting of what you've done in the past and renewing your commitment to him today. Today's the day you begin that. And so this morning I want to do something I don't often do, but I want to make it real clear and plain for you. God's invitation to you today. So you were, you were made for more than half-hearted pursuit of God. God created you to live in perfect fellowship with Him. To know joy like you can't imagine in His presence. But you and I have this constant nagging problem of our sinful nature we inherited from the first people. And so as soon as we're old enough, we rebel against God just like the wilderness generation that passed away before they got to the promised land. And that sin, that rebellion, that hard-heartedness that we've talked about all morning alienates us from God. So that all those good things that he wants to give you, that he wants to just pour over the top of your head, are off limits to you. He can't bless disobedience. But God loves us so much that even when we were as far away from him as a person could possibly be, when we were yet sinners, his enemies, and dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent his son Jesus, the new Joshua, to lead us not into the promised land, but into the fullness of joy that's at God's right hand. So that in him we could have true forgiveness of our sins. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. So as soon as you repent of your sins, you can be confident of God's favor that rests on you in Christ. Jesus even says that there's more joy and rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. He's ready to roll all that away. The shame, the guilt. He's ready to give you the fellowship with Him that you were created to know. So you can sit down at a banquet feast just like the Israelites did at the Passover and you can eat and be satisfied. So that you can know what your future holds. What is next for me? It may not always be easy. Indeed, we've seen that God often calls us to great sacrifice for Him. And yet we're confident that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, and that there's an inheritance laid up for us in heaven that's imperishable, undefilable, and unfading, and it's kept there by the power of God for everyone who believes, so that when we die, we'll be with God forever. The only question is, will you repent 
and believe? Will you let go of the life of disobedience that you've lived? Will you give up your rebellion and will you take hold of God? I know there are people in this room today who've never done that. You've never come to the moment of personal decision. We say, well, my family did one thing. The people around me are doing one thing, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to repent of the life I've lived, and I'm going to commit my life to God. And I wonder, if you're here today and you want to do that, you want to commit your life to God, would you raise your hand? Good. Hey, it's all right. All of y'all raise your hand. Let's see. Everybody who wants to commit their life to God, raise your hand. Amen. I wonder how many of y'all raised your hand to a question like that for the first time today. Is there anybody? And I wonder how many of you wish you could go back. And all those rebellious acts of disobedience from the first time you did and today. You just wish you could wipe it all away. I feel like it had never happened before. You've wasted so much time. You've made so many poor decisions. You're so far from God. How could he ever want you back? He does. So this morning, as we close our service, Scott's going to turn on some mood music. We're going to have our focus time of prayer. And here's what we're going to pray about. We're going to pray about the areas of our lives defined by disobedience. The area you thought about earlier when that question was on the screen. Whether it was your family or the secret habits you cultivate when no one's around. Whether it's the way you spend your money and your time. And we're going to repent together. I know preachers, we get in this habit of just saying, hey, repent. I want to teach you how to repent, okay? One of my pastors taught me this. It's five steps of repentance. You've got that sin, that area of disobedience in your mind. And I want you to work through these five steps. Okay, here they are. Scott, can you show them to us? Number one, you're going to acknowledge your sin. You're going to confess. I have sinned by, insert your blank, right? I've sinned by mistreating my family. I've sinned by lying on my taxes. I've sinned by, you insert your area of disobedience. And then express some sorrow. Paul says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow just produces anguish and grief. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Say to God, I'm sorry. Do you know that your sin harms God? It's hurtful to Him. Apologize. I'm sorry, God, that I have sinned against you by treating my family the way I have, by spending my time the way I do. Then ask Him to forgive you. God, will you forgive me for that? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to 
forgive us of our sins. So when you ask God to forgive you of your sins, and you mean it, you know, it's from a genuine place, not just going through the motions, you can be confident He answers your prayer. And He asks God to cleanse you. This is making it like it had never happened. He casts our sins away from His presence as far as the east is from the west. God, cleanse me. Make it like, give me a new heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cleanse me. Number five, empower me. Holy Spirit, help me from this day forward to live a life that's obedient to your commands. To love my family the way you want me to. To spend my time wisely, you knowing the days are evil. And so I want to challenge you to repent this morning. I wish I knew, I wish I had the special x-ray goggles that God has that he could see into the deep recesses of your heart. And when I named different sins that I thought you ought to think about, I knew exactly which one to say. But I trust God's made it obvious to you. And when Scott begins to play the music, I want to challenge you to come down to the front. Just like the men of Israel came to Joshua's tent. Maybe you want to kneel right here along this stage. Put your body into motion with what God's telling you to do. Maybe you want to use the front pew. It's a little more cushioned for your elbows, and so you can lean there and pray. Tony, our prayer coordinator, is going to be in the back. Maybe you want her to pray with you. I'll be down here if you want me to pray with you. Repent of your past disobedience and renew your commitment to God. And if, when you raised your hand, it was specially significant to you, like, hey, this is the first time I've ever done this. This is really important for me. This is a line in the sand. My life from this day forward is going to be different. I'd love to know about it. And so will you come let me know?